Hi there, this is Pastor Tim. I'm the minister at Eastside Church. We are a United Methodist congregation in East Atlanta Village. We seek to be creative, historic, and inclusive. And we are thrilled that you found our podcast. If you'd like to learn more about our church community, you can visit us at www.eastsideatl.org. Well, again, friends, if I missed you at the introduction, good morning and welcome to worship with us here at Eastside. It is truly a joy and a privilege to gather with you on this morning, even as we continue in this digital frame of being together. It is exceptionally challenging. After last Sunday, we were able to gather in the church parking lot for a service of Holy Communion on Easter Sunday, and it was such a Just a good thing for my soul and I believe for the souls of those who were able to be here to gather with one another and to receive the body and the blood of our Lord and to to be with one another. And it makes the, the the continued separation that we have experienced in this season, it makes it that much more poignant a week later. But yet, in the midst of that, it is indeed Easter Two, Easter Sunday to Easter Tide, the second Sunday of, and this is the season where in the Christian liturgical year we do not, we do not look back to last week of, of the celebration that we had and say that was a, a grand gesture of joy, but we, for a, for a whole period leading up to Pentecost as the church, we live into a season of resurrection of Easter Tide as we continue each Sunday to celebrate God's defeat of death, the presence of the risen Lord with us now, today. If you have been with us since January, we have been on something of an extended teaching series that, that brought us even through Lent and that transitioned last week. And that series was, was, was titled Mosaic, Reflections from the Wilderness. And it was an attempt, a way for us to, to look at the, the sort of sharp edges of 2020 and the, the, the challenging experiences of, of the pandemic and of the year that we had had and, and to ask questions about how is God seeking to create, to make something beautiful from the, from the broken pieces and to form a mosaic of, of beauty, of art, of new life. And... Today, this Sunday, beginning last week, we moved from sort of the mosaic experiencing of seeking to create something, something from the brokenness into this, this series that we're essentially naming Reforest, Reforesting. And it's a movement from the metaphor of, of the broken and jagged edges of art in the wilderness as we're reflecting on, on the challenging times that we've been in to sort of the, the, the season of Eastertide of resurrection and asking on the other side of wilderness what new life, what resurrection signs, what, what movements of reforesting is God at work bringing about in our world and in our lives and, and what are we called to do in the midst of it? How are we called to participate? And the way that we've transitioned metaphors is last week we looked at the idea of, of the forest fire, of the way that a forest fire sort of 
sets a different or a, or a new context for the, the formerly engulfed area of forestry on the other side of the fire. And we're looking at, at our lives as we're collectively and communally beginning to hopeful, be hopeful and to, to hopefully transition from, from sort of the, the groundhog day of the pandemic into a new season of, of whatever's next. And as we do that, we're, we're joining curiously with one another, encountering God and encountering the empty tomb of Easter and asking what what in, the, what in the aftermath of the forest fire of 2020, what is God seeking to do? How is God seeking to be at work? What, what's coming? What's happening in our midst? What can we look to? And we're going to begin this reforesting series this morning with with an Old Testament text that many of you may be familiar with if you grew up in the church, specifically a church community that, that lived into Advent and, and offered some of the liturgical readings at Christmas time. It's from that famous prophet Isaiah, and it's from early on in his, in his sort of magnificent prophetic work, the book of Isaiah in chapter 11. And as I read it again, if you're familiar with it, you'll know it almost immediately. But as I read it, begin to hear it in the context of as we enter into this new journey of reforesting and asking what, what new life has God at work bringing about on the other side of, of devastation or of trauma or of the pain of, of 2020 and the pandemic and all of these realities that we as a community and as a world are coming to. So friends, I invite you now to embrace a posture that is comfortable and meditative for you. And as I read, I invite you to listen for the word of God. Isaiah writes that a shoot shall come out from the stock of Jesse. A branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord shall rest on him. The, the spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what he sees or decide by what his ears hear, but, but with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the loin around his waist, excuse me, the belt around his waist, and faithfulness the belt around his loins. The wolf shall live with the lamb, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion and the fatling together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the asp, and the weaned child shall put its hand on the adder's den. They will not hurt or destroy on all my holy mountain, 
For the earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. On that day, the root of Jesse shall stand as a signal to the peoples. The nation shall inquire of him, and his dwelling shall be glorious. Friends, the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Please pray with me. Maker of heaven and earth, good and gracious creator, And this morning, we gather in this space as your creations, as creatures in these feeble bodies of flesh and of blood made of the dust of this world. Yet, God, we come somehow animated with life, somehow breathing another breath, somehow capable of collecting another thought, and gathering, if even just in this digital space, with our siblings in Christ. So God, I ask that in this time, that not only would we sort of objectively state or believe that your presence is with us, but God, I pray that you would make that, that belief be tangible and be real as you meet us, as you become manifest for each and every person gathered now. And God, I ask that these words that I have prepared might indeed be your word for your people in this time. God, speak through them, translate where necessary, and of course, speak in spite of me. And God, as I preach, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be found right, pleasing, acceptable, joyful in your sight. In Christ's name we pray. Everyone said, and some people typed, amen. Isaiah writes so long ago in this ancient text that we normally read during Advent, leaning into Christmas, leaning into our anticipation of the coming of one who would save. This morning we read this this text, the Sunday after Easter. While something has come not only into fruition, but something has surprisingly come into new life and surprised and transformed. And Isaiah says so long ago that a shoot would come forth from the stump of Jesse. Of course, Jesse being the father of King David, King David being Israel's most beloved and historic king. Isaiah making the statement, making the claim that God is not done with the world and with God's people and with shalom and goodness and justice. So the smallness of the way the text describes this little sprout coming off of a stump that represents David's ancestry made me think about the question, well, what's the, what's the, the biggest And in my quest to figure out what the biggest is, I found a thing, a living thing that that weighs almost 6,000 tons, takes up 108 acres of space on our planet. And it resides in Utah. Some of you might know what I'm speaking to. 
but I'll give you another clue in case you're still wondering. It's understood by scientists not to be sort of a collective of organisms, but they, they, they classify this 108-acre, 6,000-ton organism as an organism, not many gathered together. They name it as one. Some scientists date the... The, the oldest parts of this as 10,000 years old. Others want to say that it's collective sort of journal entries, if you will, of, of handing off to the next life expression of itself. Goes back as far as a million years, depending on who you're talking to. But regardless, this is said to be the largest living and oldest organism on our planet. So it's the biggest and it's the oldest on planet Earth. And of course by now you're asking the question, well what did they name the thing, right? And I come to you this morning to tell you they named it Pando. That is true, Pando. Not to be confused with either Rambo or pandas, Pando. This organism that lives in the southern part of Utah is home to the oldest forest in the world that we know of. This remarkable vestige of life on our planet. And it, of course, people use words like mysterious when encountering this ancient forest. And also the, the strangeness of it, its collective nature as it shares one entire root system. There's not many root systems to go with each of the trees, but there's one root system that all the trees above the ground share, thus making it one organism. And all of this made me think about what if, right? What if trees could talk? Or should I say a tree? Because apparently the largest organism on planet Earth is classified as a single organism, which would make this forest one tree, in a sense. It's fascinating. And it's a little like uh, thinking about a city has one water system for the whole city, as opposed to if you go out into rural communities or outside of the city system, you have wells for each house. That's kind of how we imagine trees, normally one tree and then its own set of roots. But, but this pando forest, they share one root system for the entire group of trees above ground. If trees could talk, what would this organism have to say to us? Kind of a fascinating question. I would love to go visit someday this forest, as I'm sure some of you probably already have or would like to. But it seemed like an interesting, an interesting conversation when we begin to, to talk about this metaphor of reforesting in our Eastertide season, this metaphor of of a season of growing new things, but for us in our context, in the, in sort of in the wake of what we're using for this metaphor of disaster, the, the wildfire. I spoke about this some last Sunday, but as I was reflecting, using the Mosaic series, at, you know, reflecting back on 2020 and thinking about and reflecting on the wilderness, it sort of, hit me that I knew that there was tremendous damage done by wildfires 
in the past year, in 2020, but probably like many of you, I, if I wasn't going to be directly impacted by that, my mind was caught up with so many of the other things, the racial violence and unrest and the, the pandemic and the hope, I guess, back then, the hope of vaccines and anxiety and stress around United States election cycles. I mean, there was just a lot, you know? So while I, I recognized how, how, how horrific the fires were of 2020, specifically that, that people who lived in LA last summer were, were seeing skies filled with smoke and haze even though the fires were, were far from LA. They brought to mind 2016 living here in Georgia, and if you lived here, then you probably remember that in 2016, we had sort of our own version of what Los Angeles experienced last summer when the Rough Ridge Fire, which started in October of 2016, it began to, to blow, the, the smoke began to blow south into the city of Atlanta. A fire that here in our own state burnt nearly 28,000 acres of our state's forest. And probably not really terribly surprising to any of you out there, scientists, foresters, people, people who study the, the impact of, of fires and forest fires on ecosystems, they're concerned that the, the chances of the Pando forest setting ablaze are increasing year over year over year. Part of this is because of, of, of the, the way climate change is impacting southern Utah, the dryness and the, the increasingly sort of arid nature of things in that, in that context, but also because what they're discovering about the Pando Forest is that it's aging in, in the sense that it's not regenerating as, as well as it should be. So the older trees are getting older and older, but the seedlings are being grazed upon apparently by, mainly by a, a species of deer that are coming through and, and are taking out the seedlings before they can, can grow to the maturity level that they need to be able to sustain that kind of grazing. And it's having a negative effect on the whole of the Pando forest, which is, is scary because it, it's understood to be one of the sort of ecological wonders of our world. And the idea of it being sort of annihilated by a wildfire is devastating, but, but I think at the same time, it also sort of yet again introduces the complexity of the conversation around forestry and around fires in our, in our own country, in our world more broadly. It, it is kind of a tricky issue. I'm going to talk more about that, but one of the, one of the ways in which it is tricky has to do with, with the way forests and forest fires relate to, to kind of this idea of trauma or, or this intensity that a forest fire can bring that, that we could, could easily call trauma that then leads us to a philosophical question as human beings about the traumatic, about the harsh, about the hard parts and pieces and experiences of life and sort of their their existence in our lives. In other words, should these harder or more challenging parts and pieces and experiences in, our, in life, should we be equipping people to be able to avoid them as much as possible? 
Or should we teach people that they're inevitable? Or should we in some way teach people that there's a sense in which they can teach us something? And of course, that whole conversation runs the gamut of what you're talking about, right? Anything from, from job loss to losing a loved one to violently inflicted trauma, of course, to, to wars and to poverty, to genocide. It, it runs the gamut. You could talk about almost anything in this, in this huge spectrum when you're talking about human experience of trauma. So how do you even begin to have a conversation around the challenging or certain events in our lives that was it, was it just pure bad that we had to experience that? Or was there something about that bad, right, that then allowed us to push through something or become something or help someone else? It's a complicated, it's a complicated conversation that I'm not trying to fix this morning. But what I, do want to men what I do want to speak to is the way that the trauma of a forest fire has an impact on a forest that's really fascinating. And I think it begs questions about, <clears throat> excuse me, what a forest looks like on the other side of, of a fire. And how does human intervention or lack of intervention with the forest and with forest fires have an impact on how those fires ultimately impact the forest. Because humans have, for the last however many decades, been very active in trying to help our country, at least here on our soil, avoid all forest fires for the most part. We've, we've tried to put them out as fast as we can and keep large groups of trees from catching fire. We, we made up Smokey the Bear, right? Only you. Y'all know how that ends. Anybody in the room? Forest fires. There you go. See, we've, we know that, right? Because they did such a good job of marketing it. But it's, it's not quite as simplistic as we have grown up hearing about it. And sometimes I think that life and some of the challenges we face in life can also be more complicated and complex than just a desire to avoid hard things in the world. Which brings to mind all of these questions that I think are, are helpful to actually borrow from the language of the serenity prayer. When we're talking about seasons of wildfire in our lives and then what comes after, what do I need to simply work to accept as something that is now that I cannot change? What are those dimensions to whatever is now after this wildfire of a pandemic? What do I need to learn to accept? And at the same time, what do I need to, to work to impact? Where do I need to try to insert my free will, my autonomy, my capacity as a human being to have an influence on whatever is now in front of us? That's, that can be a hard question. And as we stare at the world after the, in the wake of the, the firefight of the last year, I think many of us may be asking questions about what, what do I do now? What's the right next thing to do? We've learned that it's not always good to 
keep every single wildfire from burning. We've learned that controlled burning can actually be a healthier way to manage a forest system, to manage an ecosystem. But what do we do on the other side? What do we do on the other side of, of what we spoke to last Sunday? Jesus, who rolls into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey or a colt, depending on which version you're reading, and Jesus knowingly sort of throws sparks on what is the dried up, easy to ignite context of ancient Jerusalem, and he does. He sort of lights the city on fire, and then he goes down to the temple after he parades in and throws more gas on the flame, a flame that sort of sets in place a blaze that by Good Friday has him on the cross, and by Holy Saturday has his disciples grieving the loss of their leader, of their savior. And it happens really fast, which... It's exactly what happens with the blaze of a forest fire. What's so fascinating, though, is that there's this other place where Jesus, in his public ministry, speaks to... He's always speaking agrarian, in agrarian language, but he speaks specifically to a seed, and he says this pithy thing, that unless a seed falls to the ground and dies, it cannot burst forth and become the new life, the new plant that it is made to be. A seed has to be buried in the ground and, and essentially sacrifice itself in order for that which is to come to be able to, to burst forth on the other side. I think Jesus saw his own crucifixion, his own death, very much so like sort of taking the seed of his ministry, bundling it up into this seed form and, and, and planting it in the ground. This sort of un, unavoidable step in the process of the transformation of our world. The receiving of all of the injustice and toxicity and violence that the world wanted to throw. The Christ receives it all and forgives all of it, all of the horror that human beings can throw. Jesus is willing to take all of that into his own person in order to transform us in our world and to show us a different way, but not just to show us a different way, but to actually activate, to do something different and new in the world. And that's what we celebrate on Easter, my friends, and in the Easter season is that Jesus is this metaphoric seed that went into the ground that on Easter Sunday we find as the, the gardener wandering around while Mary's looking in the tomb and then the gardener approaches her and says, woman, what are you looking for? And her not even recognizing the Christ, thinking him to be to the gardener and probably being right Jesus on Easter is coming into being and is, is already in the gospel text going to work, cultivating, rebuilding the brokenness of, of the first creation that we learn about in Genesis. The gardener, the resurrected Christ, immediately goes to work in the soil around him near the tomb so the Mary, when she encounters him, says, you, you look like the gardener probably because he's covered in soil. 
because he's at work in the first creation. But he himself, his life, his ministry is not just at work in the first creation, but it's also this, this beautiful seed that is bringing something new, something different, something surprising into our world. God can multitask, friends. We, not so well, but God can multitask, which means that God can simultaneously be at work healing the first creation while creating and bringing into being a whole new one right at the same time. You see, that's hard for us to, to imagine because we're not good at it. We think we are, maybe, but we're not good at doing two things at once so well. But God can be healing and bringing about the renewal of the first world and at the same time, launching something new, springing forth new seeds of something never before seen by any of us, right in the middle of it. And that's, that's the mystery of the kingdom of God, of the resurrection, of the Eastertide season. It's like God's working to create whole new colors and whole new realities and then slowly working with us to have the eyes and the hearts and the imagination to even be, get, be able to have the capacity to perceive. This is why during Easter tide, it is so important for us to be making new art. This is why we have a live artist with us this morning. Thank you, Roxy Drew. This is why it's so important for our musicians to be composing new music during Eastertide, for you chefs to be trying new recipes, for us to be making the best sourdough bread. I'm sorry for those who cannot have gluten. This is why it's so important for us to be doing and trying new things during Easter tide because it is the season of new creation where we, we metaphorically by our own lives and what we choose to do are living as proleptic or as prophetic symbols and signs to one another and to the world, the resurrection is real. That, that it's not just... Um, a fun idea that we've handed down so that we can have another family dinner once a year with an Easter egg hunt. No, it's, it's way, it, it's so profound. But it's hard to talk about because it's hard to talk about because we talk best about things that we have a ton of firsthand experience with. But if, if resurrection is the inauguration of, of a new reality, of a new world, then, yeah, it's going to be hard to talk about. We might not even have the, the perception to envision the new colors that God is creating for us to see. But that doesn't mean we don't try. That doesn't mean we don't throw our art up on the wall and we don't throw paint on a canvas and get out the guitar or sit at the piano or pull out some new ingredients and try something do something different. It's Eastertide, friends. It's time to be joyful and to celebrate and to be yourself a symbolic representative of the new life that God is seeking to bring into this world, even if only by metaphor. That's okay. Got to start somewhere. So I've been thinking a ton about this whole reforesting thing, and you can ask Roxy, our... our arts minister and children's pastor. She, in her other, other work, does, does the work of ecology and working with the soil and with plants. And so she's been teaching me about 
forestry and this idea of reforestry. And, and I was kind of surprised as somebody who loves the outdoors how much I didn't know and how much I still don't know. And I'm excited to sort of discover that along with you all in this season together. But I was, I was trying really hard to think about how to talk about this, this one aspect of, of a forest fire on the second Sunday of Easter. And what came to mind was, was I sort of imagined the very first group of humans, the first collective of humans. And let's imagine that they were, you know, um, foragers. And they, were, they lived off wild berries and mushrooms and maybe small game. And, and it was all in this forest that they lived right next to. And let's imagine that the forest burned. It was a forest fire. And the people were okay, and they gathered together to have a community meeting, and in the community meeting, they do what people do in the community meeting, and they talk about what happened, and they're like, what do we do now? That's where the berries grew, the mushrooms were, the, the animals were, and now it's all been burnt to the ground. And they meet day one, and they don't come up with what to do. They meet day two, and they still haven't figured out what to do. All the while, it's raining outside. The rain is what what ultimately ended the fire in the first place. Day three, they're still talking about it. They don't know what to do. This is our source of food. This was our source of life, and it's gone, and we don't have the imagination, the vision. We can't see. And then one of the kids from the, the community comes running in with a green leaf, and they say, y'all got to come and see the forest. And the people follow the child out to the forest, and... It's been raining now for days as they've been in, in their community meetings trying to plan and figure out what they are supposed to do to fix the problem on the planet, right? And then they see that the forest itself, it's already doing something. The earth is already doing a thing. It's already growing new leaves in the place where the black, wild blackberry bush was. There's like leaves growing on that little stem that, that remained because the root system is apparently still intact underneath where the blackberry bush was. It, on and on and on. And, and the forest is already beginning this process of, of rebuilding itself while all the humans were huddled over here, right? Trying to figure out what we need to do to fix the broken world around us. The world at the beckoning of the creator has already gotten started. And that's pretty beautiful. And they see these things growing that they've never seen before, these plants of some kind. And I, Roxy told me that there are seeds that they, they, they need the heat of a fire to, to complete the germination process. And believe it or not, giant sequoias are one of those seeds. And imagine in this sort of imaginative scenario, the people... They see these little plants popping up that they've never seen before because there were these giant sequoia seeds under the, under the soil waiting for something like this. And now they're beginning to grow and the people are, are not sure what's happening or why it's happening, but they can see it. They can experience it. Friends, I don't, I don't know what it was like for that band of Jesus' first disciples to be all locked up together after Good Friday in the, in the upper room grieving the death of their master, the shocking, the shocking death of their leader. But I can't help but, but imagine sort of the parallel to uh, 
a primitive group of humans who have just lost their forest and everything they depended on, and they're, they're gathered over here trying to figure out what they need to do while the forest itself, by the work, by the spirit of the creator, is already, already working to heal and to regenerate and to grow while the humans are talking away, talking and talking and talking. Jesus, while the disciples were still gathered together, experiences the emptying of his tomb by the power of God and goes to work in the nearest plot of soil to his tomb. And Mary thinks he's a gardener. I love this text from Isaiah, and I know that, that we haven't spent a ton of time on it this morning. But I want to point something out by way of closing today. Isaiah essentially says that a shoot is going to spring up from the stump of Jesse. He, he points to a shoot, a small growth. And then he goes on to say the most absurd things, doesn't he? If, if you've read Isaiah chapter 11, I would encourage you, go back and look at it. After he's introduced this lovely leader who is going to judge the, the righteousness justly, he's going to have, he or she will have affinity for the meek, the, the wicked will be wiped out, he's going to be wise and discerning. Then goes on to, to, after pointing to, remember, the symbol, the sign of a little shoot coming out of a stump. That's the image, Right? He then jumps to things like, in verse 6, the wolf will live with the lamb. Wait a minute. How did we get from a little sheep coming out of a stump to a wolf and a lamb co coexisting peacefully? That's something I've never seen before, and it, I don't know, maybe you have. He goes on to say, the leopard shall lie down with the kid, the calf and the lion, the fatling together, the little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, is in verse 7. The young shall lie down together. The lion will eat straw like an ox, which just sounds crazy. All of this from what? From the image of what? A little shoot from a stump. Why do I point this out? Because Isaiah's gone way over here, and all he's got is this. But this is enough for Isaiah to point to that. And I think... When we talk about these small steps and these small growths and these small signs of resurrection life, these ways that we can be walking metaphors for the resurrection, I think this image works really profoundly because Isaiah does it right here. He says that it starts with this little shoot out of a dead stump, which eventually leads to a wholly transformed world where all of a sudden we have vegetarian lions and the remarkable thing about this text, actually, that I, I hadn't seen until I was studying it this week, is, so it speaks of, of, of lambs, and it speaks of lions and bears. And I think that's important because King David himself, he was a really good shepherd, a keeper of the, the, keeper of the lambs, and he was famous for doing what? But killing, attacking bears and attacking lions. That's important because David was doing what he had to do given the nature of the planet that he was given. 
That's the way, the, if he wanted to keep the sheep alive, he had to deal with the lion and the bear. Isaiah's precise point is, if you go back and look at the leader that's introduced in Isaiah chapter 11, how does he slay the wicked? It's not with an army or a sword. It says it's with words. It's with words. It's a world in which simply speaking justice, speaking goodness, speaking truth actually have a tangible impact. It's a world in which... There's not this conflict between within the, within the created world, but there's already been this transformation that's happened so that shepherds are no longer placed in a situation where they have to take out one creature to keep another creature safe. That's the point that Isaiah is getting at, is it's this kind of transformed world from the ecology itself all the way to the human race. All of that, all he gives us is... One small shoot from a dead stump. So friends, as you go out this week, I invite you to ask the question, how might you be a shoot from a dead stump? That is a metaphor for God's transformation of everything. That is your invitation. In the name of God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit, amen and amen. Well, we hope that you've enjoyed this week's message and we look forward to seeing you soon. If you listen from afar, and you would like to support the work that we are doing in East Atlanta and on Atlanta's east side, you can visit our website, www.eastsideatl.org, and find our giving portal there.